Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So, Shane, welcome back today on a Friday. Thank you for joining us and looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Dan. Good to be back with you. Absolutely. So perhaps we could begin with a few domestic topics. Now, I know earlier this week, President Biden, he did outline a $5.8 trillion budget proposal for federal fiscal spending in 2023, of course, an eye-opening figure. So what does the budget call for and what has the reception consisted of thus far? Good question, Dan. And, and I think it's important to just kind of take a step back and just for us to remember that this is an annual exercise. By law, uh, the president uh, puts forward a budget to Congress. Um, and, you know, I think what we're seeing that is, you know, the, the, the president's budget is a little bit more symbolic of a document um, that just lays out the administration's spending and tax priorities. This budget seeks to uh, increase domestic spending by nine and a half percent and increase defense spending by four percent. However, the final government spending bill that Congress will pass later this year uh, will have similar spending increases for uh, domestic spending and defense programs. While some of the administration's specific tax and spending proposals receive significant press attention, most of them are unlikely to be enacted into law. So some new spending proposals could make their way into the final government funding bill, but you know we shouldn't you know look at this document as uh, the roadmap to what's going to happen in D.C. over the next year. I think overall the budget contains many serious proposals, um, but this exercise in the past few years is becoming a, become a little bit more about political messaging than policy. So, Shane, very important context there, so thank you for that. I do understand as part of the proposal, taxes would be hiked by $2.5 trillion, effectively the largest increase in history. So who would feel the most impact of such a hike? And we've heard about this billionaire minimum income tax. So any background on that you could share with us, Shane? Yeah, so um, that's a lot of tax increases <laughs> to increase uh, taxes, $2.5 trillion, so obviously I can't review all of them. But I think what you can do is, you know, first start with what was in the Build Back Better um, that we've talked so much about. That's about the first trillion or so of it, or trillion and a half of it. And then we have a whole host of new proposals. And when I say new, I mean, you know, uh, some of them are old, you know, like the repeal of like-kind exchanges, like uh, increase to cap a game. So these are things we've heard from President Biden uh, and his administration before. Um, one of the new ones that probably uh, got the most attention is this billionaire's tax, as you mentioned. Uh, this proposal is basically a new iteration of um, the wealth tax ideas we've heard about over the past few years. It would subject individuals with more than $100 million of assets to a new annual minimum tax of 20% on their total income, uh, which includes unrealized gains on assets. So that's kind of the new... Um, part to really note is unrealized gains on assets. And that's what a lot of the wealth tax uh, 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 goes after. And when you hear members talk, senators and representatives talk about a wealth tax, that's what they're really focusing on. Uh, this proposal will raise $360 billion, so it's a lot of money. 
Um, but it's heavy front loaded. So what they actually do is because it would have such a big impact is allow those uh, who are subject to it for that initial tax liability, pay it over nine years. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, though, this is a proposal that has been, you know, already rejected by at least one Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin of uh, West Virginia. So it's not going to be enacted, but we're going to hear more about it. Uh, we're going to hear Democrat lawmakers uh, talk about it because a lot of them believe the general public likes this idea. More to come there, Shane, though. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on what the proposal calls for, that context, and providing some background on uh, the tax considerations as well. So we'll see how this takes shape in the weeks to come. Uh, Maybe sticking with the administration for a few more moments. And of course, we've all felt the impacts of inflation ongoing, especially at the pump, myself included. Uh, There were reports yesterday, Thursday, that President Biden's team is considering a massive release of oil from the nation's strategic reserve in order to combat inflation. Yeah, the president's plan will release one million barrels of day per day. Uh, so, you know, that's one million barrels today and tomorrow for about uh, 180 days. So it's 180 million barrels. So that's a lot being uh, released from this reserve. Um, and obviously this is to try and combat increasing gas prices. Uh, I know I have to fill up my car uh, later this afternoon. I know it's going to be a a big number, so I'm not looking forward to it. And, you know, hopefully this does provide some relief. But I think what it really does is uh, show that President Biden administration recognizes that gas prices is an issue not only for them, but for Americans, the voters. Um, They can't uh, be perceived as not, you know, paying attention to this issue. And I think that was starting to become a perception from many. It was that what is President Biden and Democrats doing about gas prices. So this was an important step for them to take. Um, this release is roughly half of what's in the strategic reserves. And the administration says, you know, they'll use the revenue that they get from this release to, you know, build the stockpile back up. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, when I go get gas this afternoon, it's probably not going to be that impactful to gas prices. Um, but it, sometimes, you know, you, you need to show um, um, an effort, you know, to at least uh, show the American people and the voters that you, you understand what the problem is and you are working on it. So it was, it was an important step for the Biden administration, but, you know, this is not the you know, holy grail, we'll say, to lowering gas prices. Thank you for the color there, Shane. Of course, any relief would be welcomed. Uh, So turning overseas for a few moments to continue with our coverage of the Russia-Ukraine war, we've been speaking about this for the past couple of months now, it seems, and there has been a range of developments over the past week, though there has been indications that Russia's strategy or perhaps the intent of this all from their vantage point might be shifting. There have been some reports of Russian troops repositioning uh, throughout Ukraine. Where does this all stand as of today, Shane? Yeah, this has been an interesting week. You know, kind of earlier in the week, you know, you heard a lot about uh, Russians pulling back from Kiev and other uh, cities in the West, and they were going to focus on the eastern half of Ukraine. Uh, but there's still been significant shelling in um, a lot of those cities in the western half of, of Ukraine. So it's it's not quite clear what is happening. I think, you know, strategically, um Russia and President Putin have, have are starting to recognize that this will not be a quick 
or as they anticipated. Um, so they're probably thinking about, you know, what the shift is. And for, for Vladimir Putin, it's what is the outcome he's trying to get and at least look to the Russian people like he achieved uh, his goals. And so you're hearing people talk about, you know, the splitting up of Russia between the East and the West. Um, and so that could be a possibility. I think, you know, keep in mind that some of that Eastern region is where um, uh, there are a lot of Russian speakers that uh, for years, uh, Vladimir Putin has said that, you know, that's his interest. So, you know, I, I think we're going to see uh, a focus on the eastern part of Ukraine in the coming days and weeks. But, you know, today it looked there was reports of Ukraine going on the offensive in Russian territory, which they have denied. Um, so we don't know yet if that is Russia trying to uh, provoke and escalate the war in their own manner or this was an actually offensive attack by Ukraine. So, you know, this is going to continue to develop. I think a lot of people in D.C. are trying to figure out, you know, obviously this war is not quick, but we don't think that it's going to be a 10-year war. So how does this get resolved quicker uh, rather than later? You know, how do we get this uh, a piece uh, in place in the next few weeks or months versus in three or four years from now? So you know, there's a lot of thought that behind the scenes but it's too early i think for both russia and ukraine to start making concessions so uh, you know i don't see this ending in the next uh, few weeks here but hopefully there'll be developments that do um uh take place in in the coming weeks that uh, will lead to a peace process soon as we know this story has taken many tragic turns and it sounds like there are many unknowns still out there though hopefully we're moving closer and closer towards the de-escalation. Uh, before we close out, Shane, maybe we can come back stateside for a few moments. I know last week we spent a fair amount of time covering developments specific to the Supreme Court. Now, this week we have seen some headlines surrounding Justice Clarence Thomas uh, calls for his recusal related to January 6th, uh, 2021 cases. What can you share with us there? What have we been hearing? Yeah, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Thomas is under pressure from some Democratic lawmakers to recuse himself from uh, court cases related to the January 6, 2021 protests and invasion of the Capitol uh, because of his wife's political activities. Um, and there are a few lawmakers who even called for Justice Thomas to be impeached. Um, an impeachment, uh, you know, while that, you know, we may hear about that, we don't think that's going to be that happen because it'd be a monumental development. Um, but it'd be a lengthy process, and we just have not seen enough evidence or anything to actually warrant such a, a drastic step. Um, you know, uh, because of his wife's activities, that doesn't mean he has done anything wrong or illegal. So, you know, unless there's more that we have not seen, you know, this is just a lot of uh, chatter about the on the impeachment level. For recusal, you know, that may happen, but I think it's still too early. I think uh, Justice Thomas is uh, going to try and remain defiant and not recuse himself from any cases. Um, but we'll see how this plays out. But since we're on the topic of the Supreme Court, I did want to follow up and say that, you know, um, Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, seems to still be on her path forward to the um, uh, uh, confirmed by the Senate, probably the end of next week, and she'll is likely to be 
a Supreme Court justice uh, uh, once the new term starts later this year. Thank you, Shane, for the update there on Judge Jackson, how those hearings have been going, and certainly something we can follow up on during our next conversation. Though with that in mind, Shane, I know we're coming up to the end of the week. I do wish you a nice weekend. Thank you for dropping by and keeping our listeners informed on a range of developments, and we'll look forward to picking back up with our conversation next week. Looking forward to it, Dan. Have yourself a great weekend, and uh, keep in mind, baseball starts next week. I'm looking forward to it. I know the Mets are looking pretty good, the Yankees so-so, so we'll see how we'll see how this all plays out. But thank you again, Shane. Great catching up. And again, today we've been joined care, by man. Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. As a reminder to our listeners and clients, please be sure to reference the latest Washington Weekly publication on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.